Gresham College presents Stand-Up Comedy by Professor John Pick, Gresham Professor of Rhetoric. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second of the three lectures on comedy, um, which uh, uh, we're, we're, we're having on three successive Thursdays here. Last week we talked about radio comedians and about the um, kind of world that they inhabited, particularly in the 40s and 50s. Today, I, I, I want to speak about another strain in our comic tradition, the stand-up comic or stage comedian, um, largely the, the, the kind of comedian who worked the variety circuits in, in the first 50 years or so of, of, of this century. Important to remember that Though I did say last week that comedians are, in my view, a very important part of a nation's culture, they're, they're indicators and they're, they're very important um, figments, if you like, of the national imagination, it's important to remember that the comedian in the modern sense is really a creation of the late 19th century. Um, if you spoke of a stage comedian in the 18th century, you meant, of course, a, a stage actor, somebody who played comic roles in comedy plays, and you had low comedians and, by implication, high comedians according to the style of the comedy part that they played uh, in, 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 in the play. The creation of the comic in the sense that we're dealing with it this morning was really a creation of the music halls, the late music halls, towards the end of the 19th century, and particularly of the variety circuits and the American vaudeville circuits and the like. So the people whose, na the peoples whose names come to us when we think of who are our comedians uh, belong to a fairly recent and very specific tradition. And I want to try and indicate some of the techniques that they used and say a little about how they came to be. We know a great deal about the history and development of the 19th century music hall. Um, we generally, when we read accounts of it, read that it began in around 1848 when uh, Charles Morton and his brother-in-law took over the Canterbury Arms on the Westminster Bridge Road and there converted a skittle alley into uh, a special room, a kind of theatre where you could drink and uh, eat and watch performances at a platform at one end, and that onto that stage they presented, uh, they put a series of performers who had worked, by and large, the um, supper rooms and the drinking rooms and the cider cellars and so on of London's nightlife. That's the kind of conventional starting point. Um, it seems to be more or less true that it did start, music hall, um, around um, in, in the form that we recognize it, around 1850. It's also true that its expansion was phenomenal. And by ten years later, um, there seemed to have been uh, certainly more than 200 music halls in London. And, and this is very important to remember, a considerable number in our other industrial cities. Remember that the music halls were of two very broad kinds. There were those which were licensed, which actually had a stage performing license, and then there were a great deal more that were not officially licensed in the sense that they don't appear 
in the records because they were just adjuncts, usually to pubs, an upstairs room, sometimes a back room, sometimes a cellar, sometimes a, a house next door converted. And the reason that they were unlicensed is the fact that unless you wanted to run a public theater of some size, licensing was in fact not strictly necessary. It wasn't until 1872 that a publican had to apply for a special license to have singing and dancing uh, on his, or occasionally her, premises. So the explosion was very quick. This kind of entertainment where you had in the early days a chairman, always a man, who sat at a table, usually at the front of the hall where people came and drank, and watched the acts, and introduced a succession of performers who, in the very early days, seemed to have been a mixture of professionals who earned their fairly meager living going from hall to hall singing their songs, um, and semi-professionals, some people who had other jobs and, and, and worked the music hall circuit. It, within 10 years, however, had become big business and a fully professionalized um, industry. And towards the end of the 1870s, um, the chairman, as a phenomenon, the kind that one's familiar with from television reconstructions of music hall, had in fact begun to disappear. And um, the famous chairman in London, Paddy Green at Evans's, and William Anderson and the son at Knightsbridge, uh, Baron Courtney at the South London Palace of Varieties, and Pat Corrie uh, in the Highgate Road at Pancras. The famous chairman, there and many others, had begun to, uh, to, to disappear. And at the end of the 1880s, one prominent chairman in London was being advertised as the last chairman in London. By the 1890s, there were the first resurrected shows of Music Hall. The good old Music Hall, the good old days, kind of nostalgic presentations of something which was felt to be already past its um, peak. And this was for the second point we have to make about licensing. This was for a, a particular reason. The London Theatres and Building Act of 1879 had begun for the first time to prescribe very precise regulations about where um, you may present a public performance. They'd insisted upon such places being annually inspected and there being proper means of egress, um, proper lighting, safeguards for the gas lamps and all the rest of it. And this had simply meant too much money had to be invested in many of the smaller halls. I calculate that in the square mile around the Angel, there were 93 uh, places in the early 1870s presenting music hall of some kind. That number halved uh, in the 1880s as an increasing number of pub rooms found that they either didn't want to apply for a license or they were refused one because the accommodation for the audience wasn't safe. Now, the one or two points that I just want to make about the music hall, which are perhaps not emphasized sufficiently, which are important in thinking about the performers who came from that tradition. The first is that it was spread pretty evenly around the country at a time when there were 33 licensed music halls in London of the major kind in the 1860s. There were 11 
in Sheffield alone of the licensed kind, no doubt four or five times as many of the small unlicensed kind. There were nine in Manchester and district. There were nine in Birmingham, eight major houses in Leeds. And very important for the history of comedy, a particular concentration in Lancashire, because of course the Lancashire comedian um, is a particular type and who goes right through our comic tradition. And that was already being fostered towards the end of the 19th century in the great numbers of music halls in the cotton towns. And particularly so in a place like Bolton, where the largest music hall actually seated 2,200 people and was a considerable size, obviously, bigger than the Palladium, say. And the chairman there was just as well known in Lancashire as the famous chairman down in London. And a second important caveat about the history of the music hall is this, that because we do kind of revive it on the television and we show those careful reconstructions alleged at the, from the City Varieties, um, we tend rather to associate it with old people, all those bewhiskered gents in the boxes and, and so on, and um, you know, the fairly aged performers in many cases. But in fact, in, in the 1860s and 1870s, this sudden tradition, the only real working class art, T.S. Eliot called it, didn't he? This sudden development of music hall was primarily a matter of youth culture. The audience in, for the music hall was pretty generally very young indeed. And had you, were you accurately to reproduce what a music hall used to be like, the boxes uh, would not, in fact, be filled with those bewhiskered elderly and uh, port-laden gentlemen that they, they usually are, but they'd be full of kids. A survey in Manchester in the 1850s um, said that the uh, social survey carried out on behalf of the local council pointed out that 10% of the audience for the music hall in Manchester was under 15 years of age, and 25% was between 15 and 20. Um, George Sims, who is uh, an interesting commentator on the music hall, says of the London music halls that he writes about that the majority of the audience on most nights were boys and girls between the ages of 8 and 15. And remember that many of the performers, though we are used to seeing them because that's the record that tends to remain uh, rather in their dotage, it tends to be very late in a career of, of a music hall performer that they made any kind of record, or in some cases even had any kind of photograph or film taken of them. So we naturally think of them as being aged. But of course, in the heyday of music hall in the 1860s and 1870s, they too were comparatively young. In some cases, very young indeed. It's quite amazing to find that quite a lot of performers were stars on the circuit well before they were 20. So it is, in that sense, uh, much more like the world of modern pop music than it is like the world of nostalgic old-time music hall that we painfully reconstruct. Now, what about the comedy in it? Well, of course, in the first couple of decades, the great majority of a music hall act was precisely that. It was music. Um, the, uh, it was a series of songs character songs, and the audience laughed at them because they were 
humorous. Now, remember we made the definition last week of saying that there's a great difference between a joke, which is a construct that you can separately identify and move from one place to another, and it, it remains, as it were, funny independently of almost of who is telling it. Uh, it is a, a comic construct in itself. And humor, which arises from a much more cohesive interaction between the performer and an audience. It's a sense of identity um, that makes them laugh. And humor depends upon a particular kind of characterization in the performer. Well, a lot of the early songs were humorous. When one actually listens to them now or reads out the lyric, it's not very clear why the audience laughed at them. But when the performer was performing them, they had a particular slant which gave a particular um, energy to the humorous laughter of the audience because they were able to identify so closely with the sentiment. Thus, all those famous old songs, my old man says follow the van and all the rest of it, in fact, are generally talking about the overcrowding, the horrors of living in uh, industrialized cities, um, they're talking about the tensions of overcrowded domestic living. They're talking about the few isolated pleasures that people had in Victorian towns when they were perhaps able to go out on a Sunday for a walk or go very occasionally for a day by the seaside or whatever. Um, they become very much funnier when you realize what kind of a release it was for the audience there listening to the humorous presentation of the stage characters. But then, in the 1880s, a separate kind of comic act begins to appear, which is that certain performers started interspersing the numbers with more and more patter, more and more dialogue sometimes, sometimes straightforward monologue character work in between the verses which grew, if you like, to such an extent that the patter became the major focus of the act. And the song um, was sometimes only used to start and finish uh, a particular performer's appearance. And that's one of the um, antecedents of the signature tune about which we spoke very briefly last week. Now, this patter was, again, not enormously funny in itself. Let me give you an, an example. It's very easy to demonstrate why something isn't funny. This is uh, a piece of patter which was presented by the great comedian who came from music halls, Dan Leno. And the Dan Leno's um, patter here was in the guise of a politician speaking to the working men of England. It's a little bit like the Peter Sellers records, some of you may know. This is the politician speaking. You have to remember, this is Dan Leno in character. It is my intention to hold a meeting here today and say a few speaks. Working men of England, you must rally round me. Working men, you don't seem to understand yourselves. You must Move yourselves, get behind yourselves, and push yourselves forward. Don't stand about the place and stand about just for the sake of standing. No, 
Now is the time, and the only time. When time is time, you can't get away from facts. What did Mr Gladstone say the other day? Ah, what did he say? I again ask you, working men of England, what did he say? Um, you know some people see things when they look at them? Well, you can't, uh, you can't eat soap and wash with it. Well, well, that proves just what I've just said, that the working men of England uh, this day are nothing more or less than, uh, than, than working men. You can't get away from facts. It, well, please. It, it, if I may say so, it disproves the point of you. <laughs> if you you're, you're not supposed to laugh at it. I wanted to make the point <laughs> that when you remember that that, not really hilarious stuff, surely, was actually presented by that man on stage, that then it begins at once to make a, a great deal more sense. Because, in a sense, in, in the patter comedians of the music hall who began to develop such primarily spoken acts as Lino's, what you get is the coming together, obviously, of two traditions, a literary tradition of humor where there's character jokes being made in the particular character he's representing, and the visual tradition of the clown from the 18th century um, and early 19th century circus, and of course a much longer European tradition than, than that. In other words, it, in combination, both looks funny and sounds humorous, and the melding of the two um, is, in the case of a great comedian like Lino, um, incomparable. Now, that face is a fascinating one. Um, it's an important point to make about the history of uh, the music hall that most music halls were, of course, had the majority of the audience um, either level with or, or, or rather below the performer. Not all of them, but the majority had that. And the performer was, when lit at all, lit very heavily from underneath. And therefore they were able to use, it's a characteristic of many, many um, uh, comedians, they were able to use the very heavy eyebrows and um, black tin eye in order to give a sort of shape to the face with a strong lighting from underneath, um, which also meant that working the eyebrow became a characteristic of comedians. When people describe Lino and describe comedians right up to certainly George Roby, they, they'll often talk about that. And similarly, um, the face for, of a comedian has to register the attitude to the material. We'll come back and say a little more about that later. Lino's face in all his characters, and he changes character a great deal of the time, um, is always remarkably guileless. That is one extreme. The other, of course, as we shall see a little later, is the kind of Max Miller face, which is where the comedian comes from the opposite side and is more knowing than the audience and is, is full of um, all kinds of, of guile. But when Music Hall really begins to fade in its kind of classic form towards the end of the 19th century, um, the comedian is still a comparatively 
small part of a show which is still very heavily um, music. Uh, the greatest comedians like uh, Leno and his famous partner Herbert Campbell had begun to emerge from that kind of tradition, but they worked more as comedians perhaps in pantomime than they did uh, on the halls. And the comedian who just relied on Pato was still a comparatively minor part of the bill. All that changed, very interestingly, with the coming of the variety uh, circuits. And just as one has that great explosion of music hall in the 1860s, so in the first decade of this century did we have, um, particularly led by Oswald Stowe with his vast, quick-growing empire chain, uh, one had a, an explosion of building of new variety uh, theatres and the establishment of a number of circuits, ranging from the number one circuit with the big empires in the big cities through to quite small and local circuits of variety theatres, many of which, of course, later became cinemas uh, and, due, in due course, bingo houses, or they were knocked down, but um, enormous numbers. And uh, by the outbreak of the First World War, you see, there, there were more than 500 variety theatres of one sort or another in Britain. Now, variety houses themselves were different in construction. Um, here, the majority of the audience looked down on the performer. And the difference is, is very clear. When we look at the star of the variety theatre, um, the greatest star of all, Max Miller, um, it's, it's fascinating that like many, many comedians, he is, if you like, more aware of, of the impact his shoes are having on the audience than on his eyebrows. You look down on, 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 on Max predominantly from stage, but again, as with Lino, notice how he does, in a sense, still, of course, bow to the older tradition of the clown. Miller's costume is extraordinary. Um, he would appear from the wings, and he would usually, certainly in later years in his act, be wearing an overcoat, a rather posh-looking overcoat. And, of course, his famous hat. The brims of comedians' hats tend to turn up because, as I say, the majority of the audience is up there looking down on them. And when he arrived at the center of the stage, then um, he would peel off his coat and get his first big laugh and gasp of astonishment from the audience, which had already begun to laugh when they heard the introductory signature tune, Mary from the Dairy, because he revealed that astonishing piece of clothing, which is like nothing you've ever seen in the street. You'll be arrested, I suppose. It shone. It was made out of silk. It was multicolored. Um, it was enormously glamorous. Um, his tie was equally vivid, and his shoes were, as somebody said of him, the classic correspondence footwear. And his act was extraordinary. But more of his act in a second. I just want to demonstrate, if the lead will let me, why this kind of setup matters and the difference it makes to a variety performer. You see, this is how um, a variety comedian worked. 
sometimes with, of course, the, the back brilliantly lit, and sometimes um, with the uh, spotlight hardly visible with all the other lights. But basically, it was a strong spot, center stage and downstage. Now, variety theaters were built for, for that kind of purpose. I, I've recently been slightly involved in the um, reopening, which is splendid news, of, of the Hackney Empire. And one of the things which strike you when you walk onto that old empire stage is the fact that it's natural for a performer to come down this close to the footlights. Conventional actors don't like doing that. I mean, this is, this is the wrong bit of the stage. They're used to the sweet bit of the stage being a little more upstage. But a theater which is built with a sense of the lines for variety impels you to come down to where, in later years, the microphone would be. That meant that most comedians on the stages worked front of the tabs. They worked front of usually a painted back cloth, and they worked in about um, four feet of stage, very little more. Sometimes with a stool, if they were like Miller, used to playing um, the odd instrument, like most comedians, he was quite a good musician, um, but no other effects. Their entire effect had to be in their appearance. And that appearance uh, made a rather interesting sort of point to the audience. It told them how they were to regard the material. So, just to recapitulate, the lights would be generally up, um, a little brighter than now, of course. The signature tune would play. The audience would catch a glimpse of him as he came over. And then, when he came center stage, off would come the coat. And there, in the face, in the glamour of the uh, suit, and in those dreadful, sneaky brothel creepers, he would establish exactly what kind of raunchy comic he was. Exactly the opposite to Dan Leno, but a very important uh, part of the tradition, you see. He's the knowing one. Miller himself, in private life, was a very quiet and orderly gentleman who invariably at the end of the show, um, often, according to legend, before he'd tip the stagehands, uh, would, would get into his, his, his car or get on the train and go back to Brighton, where he lived. And he, he, he found it very difficult to, to be away from Brighton. I mean, he, he liked going back to, to his wife and his friends down there. And, in fact, lived a, a pretty quiet kind of existence. He was a very orderly fellow. But on stage, he looks like the most raunchy, most debauched, most knowing kind of um, barroom bore and, and sex maniac you've ever met. And the costume, this is the point, says it all. When anybody else tries to do Miller's material, they look embarrassed by it. And it tends, apart from one or two very great um, impersonations, I think Roy Hudd's impersonation of him is, is, is one of the very best, but most performers look embarrassed by the material. In some way, they indicate that actually they know it's going a bit near the knuckle. And of course, it was near the knuckle, but it was, in a sense, all the guilt was taken away from you by that wonderful, supreme, libidinous character that revealed himself in front of you. One of his jokes that I'm fondest of 
um, goes something like this. He says, I, w- I want you to get married. So I, I, I goes to my dad, see, and I says, Dad, I've decided to get married. He says, all right, son, who have you decided to marry? I said, I decided to marry Miss Green. He said, oh, no, son, you can't do that. He said, when I was young, I had a bike. I used to get about a bit. He said, uh, she's your half-sister. You can't marry her. And I said, oh, dear, Dad, I'm sorry about that. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll marry Miss White. And he said, no, no, son, I'm afraid. It was a very good bike. He said, uh, she's your, she's your half-sister as well. You can't marry her. I said, oh, dear. So I was mooching around the house, looked very depressed. My mother come in. She said, what's the matter with you? I said, well, I said, I just went to Dad, and I said, I wanted to get married. I said, Dad, I'm going to marry Miss Green. He said, you can't. You're half-sister. And I said, well, I'll marry Miss White. And he said, you can't. You're half-sister. My mother said, you go on, you marry who you like. He's not your dad anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Given that marvellous costume, given that appearance, um, he would do something which was perfectly extraordinary. The release would come because he would make the audience think, of course, that they had seen the joke that was there, that was entirely unknown to him. And he would, he would always swerve past the punchline, throw it away quickly, so the audience mentally supplied it. They got there before he did. And he did get to some moments in his act where whatever he said, the audience roared with laughter because they imagined it must, be, it must be rude in some way. It's a marvelous Bacchic inheritance that, that, that he had. And I repeat, he did it very consciously because the audience was looking down on him. And he had that talent, which we uh, listened to one example of very briefly last week, of being able to play an audience, of being able to ride the laughter, abuse the audience in a friendly way at the right moment, and um, give them the impression that they were being very enjoyably given release and, and played with. It's the reason why that kind of stage performer and performance was so utterly dismal when it was transferred to another medium. Like most British comedians, Miller on film is dire. And he was not really very satisfactory on record, certainly what one's done in the studio or, 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 or even on radio, um, where obviously all the visual impact was taken away and he just sounded like a, a rude gag merchant on, on radio. Now, in the halls, the comedian, um, uh, sorry, in in the variety circuits, the comedian comes into his, and usually is his, own. Um, The bills, which usually would have between um, eight and 12 acts, would almost always contain at least two comedians, sometimes three. as, again, we were saying last week, it was quite common to find that the um, one at least of those comic acts would be um, a double act, would be one of the famous double acts of the halls. And it was also reason. like the extraordinary Jimmy James, who himself, rather in the traditions that we again briefly discussed last week of having a straight man at centre, was comparatively straight compared with the lunacy of the people who wandered on stage during his act 
and who he tried to interrogate. People like Eli Woods and earlier, of course, Roy Castle worked for him. The comedy had become so important that usually, though not invariably, the comedian would probably be the best paid person on the bill. Uh, and, and records tend to show that people like Miller really earned a fantastic amount from uh, doing work on the variety circuits over here. But Miller is a southern um, comedian, obviously. He's sort of southern cockney-ish. And it's important to remember that the comedian remains a representative of various parts of Britain. In other words, it's, it's part of our culture which still is genuinely rooted in regional differences. And on the halls, as well as those smart, knowing, usually trilby-hatted southern comics, there were a marvelous doer Scottish comics, whom somebody like Chick Murray, I suppose, is, is the most recent example. People like Will Fife, and Will Fife had this doer act, which made no concessions to the fact that he might be speaking to a southern audience. Uh, he talked, basically, about Scotland and about life in Scotland in his act. And it was a Scottish act. There were no compromises there at all. And there were, of course, the kind of yokel traditions. And uh, perhaps most important of all, the Lancashire and sometimes the other side of the Pennines to Yorkshire comedians, the northern comedians. The northern comic tradition was different again, wasn't it? One had all those extraordinary performers who usually physically looked different. They established themselves as being very battered. The characters from Norman Evans, for example, and Frank Randall worked a great deal of their time with their teeth out. They looked gnarled and battered. They looked as if they'd been into mill for years and years. Usually they were flat-hatted. And quite often, their stage act was done in working clothes. And their persona on stage was of the sour, rather doer, embattled northerner. The kind of thing, I suppose, that a comedian like Les Dawson now um, sometimes still represents on stage. That's an enormous tradition. And again, it's fascinating to see how far it traveled. Some northern comedians had a reputation in the variety circuits up and down the land. Some of them, Norman Evans among them, uh, made some films. Um, but some didn't at all. And certainly one of the most extraordinary phenomenon of our uh, comic history is Frank Randall who very rarely worked uh, to any effect in the south of England, but who was uh, somewhat erratic in his personal behavior, but was undisputedly the king of the major northern theaters, and particularly of Blackpool. And Randall's act was a supreme example of very local humor. If I could just have my spotlight again, I, I can't possibly impersonate um, that astonishing man, but one of Randall's most extraordinary acts, he only had about four, was of the old boatman. And 
this was a little different from Miller. Miller walked center stage and then revealed himself. In fact, uh, Randall would quite often be revealed. And he was often fairly drunk, so it was a good idea he was. But he would be revealed in the character of the old boatman, the kind of rather shady-looking soul who has a little boat and takes you out shrimping or something at Bridlington. And I saw him once as a, as a, as a young boy um, at Blackpool doing this. And the audience, as always, started laughing with the signature tune. He was revealed a tatty bit of scenery as a boat, and there was this character with the turtleneck sweater and... Um, I don't think he spoke for five minutes. Basically, he cleared his throat and, and belched and percolated would be the only word I can think of. Extraordinary noises seemed to come from his gastric juices on stage as he slowly accommodated himself to the fact that we were out there and he'd have to speak to us. There was this noise going on for four or five minutes. The audience was in stitches during this. I mean, I had no idea why they were laughing, but I, I, you know, one does go along with them. I, I was laughing too. And he looked up and down this deserted beach painted behind him and spat a few more times and then said, you'd never guess it with festival week, would you? <laughs> I don't remember him saying anything else. Um, probably he did. But the, the act was so perfectly, in my definition, humorous. It so encapsulated the doer misery of the, the kind of you know, day it probably was outside and the awful kind of threadbare nature of the entertainment on offer. And, and it was so homely and ordinary um, and absolutely real that one simply laughed at recognizing reality in, in an astonishing way, which I think is rather important. Again, Randall is ab it's absolutely impossible to put that man on film. His films are execrable um, because he's trying to play uh, an ordinary sort of chap, which he plainly wasn't. And unfortunately, I think we, we've too little record of him. But let's just bring things to... Um, a climax now by taking the point about the traveling of cultures. The thing one has to remember about, um, about variety is that quite unlike music hall or unlike vaudeville in the United States, the other acts on the bill were very much international people, the visual acts, the animal acts, and so on. And remember, it encompassed an enormous range of different activities. Sir John Gielgud played in variety, doing the balcony scene incredibly. I think with Gwen Frank and Davis from, from Romeo and Juliet. And he remarks rather resignedly in one of his books that the following act sent it up rotten <laughs> when they came on the stage. But here you see in the, the Colosseum between the wars, look what we have. We've got people from Australia. Um, you have Scotland's premier entertainers. And then at the top of the bill, what a mixture. Ballet on the left. And ballet was virtually, at the turn of the century, of course, only a kind of interval turn uh, at the Alhambra. Grok, 
a European artist, a very great clown, the one who did that wonderful act with the piano stool, where the piano stool was always too far from the piano, and eventually he solved it by moving the piano. And Sybil Thorndike, God help us, doing Act Four of La Tosca in its entirety. I mean, what a bill, really. Um, and in that particular one, um, of course, you, the top comic is, is, is primarily visual, uh, grok. But on the whole, the transfer of acts between Britain and America, for example, um, tended to be the other acts, not the comedians. Some, just as some comedians were local um, in, 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 to parts of Britain, to the north or Scotland or Wales or whatever, um, so uh, British comedians were generally pretty strongly localized uh, in Britain and, with some exceptions, didn't travel much over to the United States. Um, Max Wall did, briefly. Will Fife, who I mentioned earlier, in fact did his Scottish act great success in Earl Carroll's Vanities on Broadway. So some travel, but on the whole, the travel was between other kinds of acts. And comedians didn't, in general, find it too easy to cross the Atlantic until the coming of film. And film gave, because American films were, of course, distributed here very widely and strongly, and British films were not there, gave American comedians a a reputation and a charge to come over here and work in the 30s. And, of course, by the time you get to the war and the, the years after the war, um, British comics began to feel very sore indeed about the fact that they were not topping the bill very often, or hardly ever, at the Palladium. And it would seem American performers, if they sometimes thought rather inferior talent, were being preferred because they came over with the film reputation and to some extent a commercial radio reputation. That happened most interestingly, perhaps, in the case of the, the Marx brothers. They came over um, in the 1920s, before they had made um, talking films, and they played here in London to minor um, approval. They did quite well, but there wasn't much of a razzmatazz about the fact that they, they were coming over. They were just another vaudeville act who played here um, in London. They didn't leave it. And, you know, people thought they were pretty funny, but so were plenty of other troops. Fascinating when they came over the second time. They'd made animal crackers and coconuts. And, and, and they came over in um, 1931, and they played for C.B. Cochran at the Palace Theatre, in Cambridge Circus. But what they did when they came over the second time, because they had this film reputation, was they did a kind of um, hump-together series of short comic extracts from their film, Comedy Successes. And they reproduced on stage gags that were already fairly familiar to the audience from the films. What you get there is the critics acknowledging that they're very famous. There was enormous fuss about them coming. They were promoted very strongly by Cochrane. But the critics noticing that something very odd had happened, that the audience was laughing in a different way. Several critics actually remarked on it, that the audience laughed mechanically 
And as often happens when media performers try and work on the stage, the impact was very great at the beginning of their act, but dwindled away. Several critics remarked that when they were announced there was great laughter, people recalled all the pleasure that their films had given, I suppose. As they came on stage, there was great laughter. For about the first five minutes of their act, there was great laughter. And then it dwindled away as the actual work began to show itself as being a little stale. And therefore, um, several critics noted the fact that the Marx Brothers worked, um, uh, gradually picked up speed and began to work perhaps rather too quickly and became rather inaudible and rather difficult to follow in their, their stage work. I mention that because when Bob Hope paid his first visit back, having established himself as a very successful American um, comedian, he came back here in 1939. He was asked what he thought of British comedians working here. And he made two points which tie in with things we've already discussed in this uh, little series. First, he said, British comics don't work as fast as we do in the America. And that's the reason they never make it over there. But then he said, but of course what they're doing is nearly all character stuff. In other words, they're still working from their local traditions. The northern comics are still those doer, gritty kind of people who are recognizable to northern audiences. And they hadn't in a sense, internationalized themselves. And it was interesting that he picked out one or two British comedians who he thought would succeed, and prominent amongst them, Tommy Trinder, who had learned the American style of working fast with gag material and joke material and playing down his own character, except as a conveyor, a very good conveyor of joke lines. So, of course, what happens then in the uh, 50s, as you know, the early 60s, is that the television and um, various other uh, phenomena, including more easy uh, travel, uh, kill effectively the regular audiences in the variety theaters, and our variety comedians disappear. And with them, I think, goes a very valuable part of the British tradition. Where they went to and where comedy developed on the alternative circuits on television and so on will be the subject of my lecture next Thursday. Thank you very much. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk